What's going on, everybody? I'm your host today, Will Button, for Adventures in DevOps. And before we get started, I do want to remind everyone or tell you for the first time, maybe, that we are now doing these shows live in addition to the podcast. So if you do want to catch it live, we're recording on Tuesdays at 9.30 Central Time. That's GMT minus six. And actually, it's like 9.30-ish because we start at 9.30, but then usually have a little bit of a pre-chat to get our guests up to speed on how the process works. And then I click the go live button. So shortly after 9.30 Central Time, you can catch us live on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And speaking of our guests, today I have Sagi Brody, Chief Technology Officer of Opti9 Consultant, former software developer, according to his own words, still has code in production that probably shouldn't be. And I can definitely relate to that. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about resilience and disaster recovery in the cloud, how it's relevant, why you still need it, and then dig into that. See, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here with you, Will. I'm excited to speak to a a technical audience, which is not always uh, the case. Um, So, um, you know, see if I get called out on anything, but uh, it's great to be able to get as as deep as, as I want to be without having to pull myself out. Right on. That's always my biggest fear in doing talks and and live shows like this. It's the part of the show that I call Stump the Chump, where you say something wrong and somebody just calls you out on it. <laughs> that pressure, that pressure um, can be very useful if harnessed the right way. I used to um, force myself to to volunteer to speak on highly technical topics at conventions that I do knew nothing about, and I had like maybe two months. And so these topics that I was putting on the bottom of my list that I knew I needed to learn, but um, I was just dragging my feet on, you know, now, now I have a time and day where I'm the expert and I'm going to potentially get stumped. Um, and so, you know, uh, fear of embarrassment is a very great motivator. Oh, for sure. I like the approach. That's bold, but that's it's definitely going to be effective. I like it. I may steal that from you. Yeah. Cool. So tell tell our viewers a little bit about your background and how you got to be the CTO of Opti9. Sure. Um, yeah. So when I was, you know, um, like like probably many who who are listening, you know, I, I got into sort of this industry as a teenager, just you know, screwing around with computers and the internet and having fun. Um, and that you know that sort of um, curiosity somehow turned into a, a job, which is great. Um, so it was late nineties, um, my, my co-founder of a company called web air, we were kind of in the right place at the right time. And we just started hosting websites for our friends. So you can kind of think of it as a hosting company. So we were working with, um, technologies like, like FreeBSD and, um, and, and Apache and, you know, the typical sort of web stack. Um, and, and this was great because it was before, before Google and before things like PHP and before things like customer service or support. And it was kind of like sink or swim. And so we just built everything ourselves and just sort of scaled up with our customers, um, grew that business, sort of pivoted towards um, enterprise about maybe 10 years after that and started to focus on on management of, of private cloud deployments, management of public clouds, um, orchestration and, and sort of 
owning the glue in between these hybrid cloud environments. So a lot of networking, which is which is always fun. Um, and then uh, got into BCDR, so disaster recovery as a service backups. Um, networking was always our secret sauce, which is fun. You know, saying things like, hey, "It's great that you're you're copying your data somewhere. You know, how are you going to consume it? You know, what does consumption look like? You know, these are networking problems." So um, I've always been a big a big network guy. Eventually, we sold that business to private equity. Um, I stayed on as as the CTO, and, and we rebranded to Optinine after we bought or um, merged with two other companies. And um, I'm still here, mostly in a sort of a, a more of a you know chief technology product officer, which is starting to become a a thing now. Um, you know, which which you know the CTO is so vague. There's different personas. So really, my role is sort of product focused. Uh, company, you know, sort of customer focus. What are we building for customers? How are we helping them? How are we working within the bounds of the third-party technologies that we use from an integration perspective? How do we push the envelope? Um, and I'm also doing some consulting on the side and um, just trying to stay busy. Right on. I think that's a cool perspective or a cool um, journey because for a lot of us, we end up spending a few years at a company and then jump to another company. And so we end up going from company to company. I've done it myself just to, um, well, let's be honest, I've done it for salary increases, but also because of um, the opportunity to work on different technologies that I wanted to go deeper into. But I think that's a cool path and an unusual one in the fact that you've been with the same company even though there have been mergers and acquisitions along the way. So you've really built your skill set in um, driving the company as it matures versus driving your skill your skill set as you mature. Yeah, you know, I would say we, we we were a service provider. And a service provider is interesting. It's very different from an enterprise environment. And a lot of people don't realize the nuances and differences. It's funny, whenever a vendor used to call us to try to sell us something, we'd be like, all right, cool. Do you, do you have multi-tenant capabilities? No. I'm like, okay, do you know what a service provider is? Like, you know, <laughs> you realize, like, and then we'd say, well, listen, if you can if you can make a service provider happy, you can probably make anybody happy. So, you know, we'll tell you what you need to build. Um, but but you're absolutely right. What, what was great for us was that our customers were, you know, sort of... Um, in multiple industries and verticals, trying to run different applications and solve different problems. I'd say the market is more sort of segmented now and matured now. But what's great about being a service provider is your, your customers are coming to you with the with the problems that need to be solved, with the use cases. As the as the industry changes and grows, and as there's new shiny objects, they're coming back to you and pushing you and saying, "Hey, we heard about this really cool thing. We want to use it. Can we use it?" And it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's like, yes, um, you, of course, we'll, and then we'll figure it out on the back end or no. And it's like, you want to lose a customer? And listen, if there's value in what they're saying and you've heard it more than more than once in the last four weeks, um, then you listen to it. And if you think someone else can benefit from it, you listen to it. So it's our customers have been pushing us always. And that's sort of driven innovation. Um, and so we never had to. Okay, maybe you're not like going way outside of your out of your target zone, but you're constantly pivoting. You're constantly trying to keep a leg up on your competitors because if your customers are asking you for that, then competitors are hearing the same thing. And so I think where we've done well is we've owned our own. You know, we've never owned our own IP, but we've owned our own glue. 
Um, and that's empowered us to be able to you know, mix and match best in breed and just and just innovate and, um, and be at the forefront. Um, so I agree with you. I think service providers are a great place to be. Um, and even for, you know, listen, I, I was a founder, so maybe it's a little different, but within our environment over the years, you know, a, a new problem to be solved would come in and, and maybe one employee would sort of just jump on it and just be like, hey, I, I, you know, that's cool. I, I can do that. And as a smaller company, we'd be like, all right, you know, like I'll tell you, a silly example is when, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, SQL platforms got big and people wanted us to manage Mongo. And we'd have, we had one gentleman who was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. It's like, all right, you know, great. Next week, you know, that guy's the Mongo expert. Everything have everything is a Mongo <laughs> is is um, goes to goes to him, and so there's just a lot of opportunity for self growth there if you can recognize and take it. Yeah, for sure, and I think that's the key to longevity in this space is a desire to continually grow and learn new skills. Yeah, but there's also some old skills that we can't let go. One of those being disaster recovery and backups. And you mentioned it before we started recording. It's one of those that seems to have been pushed on the back burner over the last 10 years or so. Um, but doing so has some definite, um, some definite impacts to your business. So talk to us a little bit about resilience and DR in the cloud. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so, you know, we have we have traditionally provided a disaster recovery as a service offering for you know I don't want to say legacy, but you know sort of non you know non sort of cloud native applications. So things that are not necessarily running on AWS or Azure. And so over the years, we would if you look at uh, maybe a deployment running on on you know, VMs, um, running on VMware or Hyper-V or, or KVM, um, we would basically provide an entire ecosystem needed so that your applications would continue to operate, you know, despite um, some sort of outage at the production site um, or, or cybersecurity event or somebody fat-fingering you know, database. Um, and so, you know, what that looks like is obviously replicating the data, um, but m- more important than that is sort of understanding what is consumption? What does consumption look like? How are your users going to consume the application? from the DR side as they did in production. And that's a big sort of networking sort of um, task or challenge to deal with. And then also dealing with dependencies, like what about all these shared services that, that they're relying upon, like authentication um, uh, or you know, networking, DHCP, IPAM, stuff like that. Um, and so we, we take ownership of authoring the runbooks, not only for failover, failback, but what if it's just one application that you want to fail over? Um, and what do you do with shared resources? You know, if you have a, a legacy database server, which is a weird thing to say, and it's running, you know, it has hosting databases for 10 different applications and you want to fail over one, do you bring the database server with you? And so all these interesting situations um, and, and challenges. And then, you know, when, when public cloud started getting popular, you know, I had a pretty pessimistic look on disaster recovery in general. And I think, I think the entire sort of industry was excited about the fact that like we won't have to deal with that anymore. Um, we have the ability now to just build applications that are inherently resilient, um, you know, from the bottom up and, you know, we'll deploy them on the cloud. They'll be self-healing and then we won't have to deal with this. Um, 
you know, and I think, you know, what's happened is that people have tried that. You know, people have tried to build these applications that will run, let's say, in multiple AWS regions. And, um, um, and they realize the complexity involved in building the applications from the start with, with that thought in mind is just, it is just far beyond the, the bounds of what they want to deal with. Um, and we see that even when you invest time and resources into that, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work. You know, every time like AWS East has an outage or goes down, you know, how many very large popular sites, you know, household name sites go down that are technology companies that we know are deploying in multiple regions. So why are they down? Because it's almost like it's like this impossible thing to build. Um, and it's not always their fault, right? Like the interdependence between their applications and even third-party you know, SaaS um, or third-party PaaS mean that can they actually test this thing? Can they actually test their resilience plan without, you know, without actually you know, affecting production? So what I've seen is sort of like the industry going towards a middle ground where, where I mean, some people don't even realize that you can do this, but you can basically deploy an application in a, in a single region, um, not have to sort of build this whole resilience concept into your application um, from day one, and then employ traditional disaster recovery strategies um, towards, you know, sort of gaining, you know, resilience of your app. So you deploy on one region, and maybe now we can use replication tools that are, you know, more cloud-native focused. Um, and then we can still take all of those things that we learned over the years from, from traditional disaster recovery, things like um, dependency mapping, um, building runbooks to deal with different situations, building sort of network strategies so that I can test um, at the DR site without poisoning my production data. You know, if your production app is is connected to sales, Salesforce API and you bring up your app in DR and you start playing with records, like, oops, we're, we're modifying production data. So, you know, all of these sort of, you know, sort of core disaster recovery strategies, given the modern data mover that knows how to replicate or rewrite Right, um, rewrite sort of resources, uh, let's say using Terraform um, or, or cloud formations, give yourself a modern data mover and then apply everything from traditional DR and you can actually achieve resilience without having to go crazy from a development perspective. Yeah, one thing that you mentioned there a couple times that I think is um, is really key is testing that. And it reminds me, every time I think about that, it reminds me, Way back early in my career, decades ago, my boss asking our team, hey, are, are you guys ready for a disaster in the outage? And we're like, oh, yeah, we're, we're all set. And he's like, okay, great. Everybody show up on Saturday. And so we showed up on this Saturday and we went out to, he rented a conference room in a hotel, had some servers sitting there and he had our backup tapes. He's like, great, restore everything. You know, and we didn't even make it five minutes into the process before we realized, oh, wait, we don't have the, the floppy disk to update our BIOS or we don't have the, the boot disk to reinstall the operating system. And it was a really, really long and painful day. But um, the lessons have stuck for a couple decades now. Yeah, you know, that's that's a it's great when. If people are sort of overly focused on, on sort of data replication when it comes to disaster recovery. 
Um, or even worse, some people just think that their backup strategy is also their sort of resilience or disaster recovery strategy. And won't get too much into that, but you know, you have two, you know, two separate goals with you know, sort of two separate um, strategies you employ. Um, so yeah, you really need to sort of pre-author the run book. And I think today what, what's interesting now too that we're seeing is that if you look at an event like a like a ransomware attack or a cybersecurity event, um, you know, it's the, the incident response plan or the sort of the, the and or the disaster recovery runbook or something like that. It's not it's it's not something that a single team would be dealing with, right? Like right. if a DevOps team is responsible for sort of the 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 uptime and resilience of an application, um, and presumably they own sort of all this orchestration for production to DR, multi regions and failover. That's great. But now if you bring in this sort of you know this sort of security aspect that this has. This need to fail over was in relation to a security event. You know, now you have a completely new team. Maybe it's a, an internal SOC or security team or an external MSSP. And now you have these two teams that, unfortunately, in many organizations don't speak that much. And now they need to be lockstep as part of the incident. Um, and you know, if you think about a CTO or a CIO at, at a higher level, you know, they kind of become the quarterback between these teams during an incident. And it's not something that I think they even realized they, they were ever going to have to deal with. And so the incident response plans, um, the disaster recovery runbooks need to be inclusive of who is who owns what during a uh, you know, sort of a security incident. Um, you know, can you even bring up the application, you know, at, at the R site? Do you want to? So. How does a team that maybe they recognize that their their DR their resilience plan isn't where it should be? What's what are the first steps like? Because um, to get this done, you need to devote time and resources, and it has to be prioritized. And sometimes it, you have to prioritize it above like day to day operations. And and I think specifically, it comes down to what are you going to say no to. And so that you can, so that you do have the bandwidth to say yes to this. So what are some good early steps for people once they recognize that they're, they're not where they should be? Yeah. Um, so I think it's a good question. And I think the first thing that they need to do, and I think this is, I think that the market has matured uh, a bit here and this is fairly obvious now, but you know, the, the teams need to kind of sit down and figure out and, you know, um, what they have an appetite to to take ownership and responsibility for in this realm, um, and so if you look at a traditional, um, you know, DevOps sort of <laughs> how this goes in general for like a DevOps conversation is, you know, are, are we are we application developers? Are we SREs? You know, who is responsible for ongoing ongoing management? Um, you know, sort of metrics collection efficiency, um, and obviously that that's a there's no right or wrong with any of these things. And a lot of it has to do with sort of the, uh, the DNA of the company and what they kind of want to be when they grow up and, and do they want their, you know, certain IT teams, you know, adding value to the business or managing infrastructure. Um, and so, you know, we'll see, I'll see smaller organizations that are like, you know, we're a small team, we're, we own everything. So we're going to just internalize it. And I also see very large organizations that have, you know, an abundance of resources and they basically make the um, they basically make the, the the decision that we don't want to be in the business of managing disaster recovery. 
We don't want to be responsible for it. Um, we'd rather outsource it. Um, and an interesting thing to think about here is, you know, the the complexity of all of all of our applications and our deployments are they're not getting simpler; they're getting more complex. Um, in fact, I think you can argue that part of the goal of, of, of DevOps these days, part of one of the things they should be striving for, and maybe even a key metric to focus on, is to what extent am I making my you know the deployment that I'm managing? Um, to what extent am I making it simpler and less complex? Um, right. Because obviously, the more complex, the harder it is to manage, to monitor, to scale, to secure, um, and to make and to make resilient. So I think people need to acknowledge that. And when you have that conversation, you know, one of the answers that comes out of that conversation could be, hey, we want to make it simpler. How do we make it simpler? Well, how do, why don't we outsource certain layers and certain responsibilities? And disaster recovery and resilience is an easy one to outsource. It's low-hanging fruit. You know, typically, it does not affect your production too much. Um, if you can use sort of that, that middle ground strategy that I mentioned at the beginning, you don't have to modify your application, you know, much at all in order to, to be able to achieve resilience. Um, so that, that would be my answer. The first thing you got to do is sit down and figure out, you know, what is your appetite to, to manage and own that internally? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think that's a, a huge selling point. If you have a strategy where you don't have to modify your existing infrastructure application a whole lot, that's always going to be a, a big selling point. Let's let's do this. Take a step back and help me understand why moving to the cloud or using the cloud, cloud providers like AWS, is not a DR strategy in itself. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they give you the right, you know, as, as everybody knows, right? With it's it's going to home it's going to Home Depot and they're giving you the right tools and, and you got to you know make it up what you want. So um, the, you have to look at it on, on a per sort of platform, um, you know. Uh, per platform sort of uh, environment. So uh, if you look at something like S3, which obviously is being, um, you know, is being stored in, in multiple, you know, local zones within within a, a region, or even has the ability to sort of have its own inherent built-in sort of cross-region replication, um, you're probably good there from a, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to build a disaster recovery strategy between, let's say, East and West, from an S3 perspective, it is, it is fairly straightforward. You can kind of put a check next to that layer as far as your data being available um, at the at the DR site. Um, you know, recovering from a a cyber attack or sort of a, a manipulation uh, of the data—that's another story. But if mm-hmm. if you're if you know if the entire AWS goes down and you want your application back up and running within within a set RTO, you know, you can kind of put a check there. Um, for other for other sort of you know um, other platforms, it's not always the case that that that, that is done. Um, typically, it's not you know, and so there are snapshot capabilities that exist, but then there's this entire orchestration um, task that sits on top of all that. So you have all of your um, all of your configurations and resources maybe at another site, but now your applications are not necessarily written to be able to reference those at those reference IDs at the at the DR site. And so now we're so so it's really a a replication orchestration strategy, right? And so what we'll do is we'll look at your various applications, 
And then we'll look at the AWS, um, and we're doing this mostly for AWS today, in addition to the legacy environments, which I mentioned before, but for a public cloud, we'll look at the various platforms that your application is using, um, and we will employ underlying AWS technologies um, to ensure the data is up to date at the VR site. And so maybe that's, maybe that is cross-region um, uh, snapshots. Or maybe that is AWS DRS, which works very well for certain platforms, but can be expensive. So now we get into the application criticality question of, you know, how critical is each application to be up and running and sort of match the right replication technologies um, to the cost and to the application criticality. Beyond that, um, you know, we're using orchestration tools. One of them is called RPO that we'll use that will orchestrate some of this back and forth. Um, and RPO might be something that's great for a team that wants to internalize all this and just say, hey, we got a tool, let's use it. Where Optinine comes in is it's not just about the tool. It's, you know, who is, you know, do you want to take ownership of the failover process and the failback process? Do you want to take ownership of the testing, building the network um, integration strategy, um, building the automations into, let's say, you know, DNS um, maybe SD-WAN policies, um, so on and so forth. So we kind of we kind of sit on top and own the entire process, you know, soup to nuts, so that <laughs> DevOps teams and IT teams can just wash their hands of it and focus on building applications. Right on. Yeah, I'm actually an RPO customer, and it's a it's a great tool. It's just it's it's one of the few tools I've seen that just does what it says it's going to do at an exceptional level. Uh, but just like you mentioned, you know, that's only part of it. That handles the infrastructure. There's still the whole human aspect of it, of verifying what you've replicated and doing a failover to it and testing it and making sure it works. And that, and that's another full-time job in itself. It, it is. And it, but the funny thing is for us is, again, have, being a company that has been doing and providing disaster recovery as a service for, you know, uh, VMware platforms, physical servers, IBM iSeries, um, you know, Zen KVM based applications. Um, the funny thing is, you know, we, we are, we're not, you, you can say we're a technology company, but it's really that glue that we're owning. But we have, we have brought in best in breed data movers and sort of replication tools to, to you know, to focus on specific um, platforms. And, our, and, and so when we brought in RPO, it's like, hey, here's a best-in-breed tool for cloud-native AWS apps. But everything else that we're doing, all the value we're providing um, and all the wrappers around, around the replication tool, like they're all the same as we were doing five, 10 years ago, which is actually pretty cool. It's like if you can stay up with the tech and you can build a platform that can support multiple integrations in a modular way, like you can, you can stay relevant through all of these crazy cloud changes. For sure. I should, um, we had Doug from RPO on the, the podcast a few weeks ago. I should do another episode with both you and him and just go into a deep dive on this. We're whole doing subject. Funny. So him and I, and, and I've known him for a while and I really am super bullish on their platform. I think it's, it's amazing. Um, him and I are doing a webinar tomorrow actually, uh, about all this in detail. <laughs> oh, right. I'm, I will get that from you and make sure that that's in our show notes when this episode go, goes live. Awesome. That'll be a cool talk. When it comes to DR in the cloud, you mentioned that providers like AWS have a lot of the tools built in. You just have to 
look at them on a case-by-case basis, see what those tools are, and then make sure that they're enabled and that they're working properly for you. How often do you see the need or do you recommend um, cross-provider DR strategies like backing up our AWS or replicating our AWS environment in Azure or GCP? Because that brings with it a whole, like an exponential increase in overhead as well as cost. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think that you kind of have to look at, at three buckets here in general. You know, you have your high available, high, you know, the, the ability to achieve high availability, right? Which which maybe is sort of, you know, I, I think in order to build high availability for your application cross region or cross cloud, um, you're really not going to be able to get away from sort of building your application with that intent from day one. And having to uh, apply so much more complexity to your application, to your CI/CD process, and really the the level of expertise that you need from your developers, just I think it's it's on another level, right? And so, if 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 you're just starting the process of building an application now, and that is your goal, you can't you can't go back you can't go back later and just be like, oh, we'll just do that later. No, it has to be it has to be in the DNA of your application. This is also an interesting point when you start to think about um, integrations with third parties. You start to think about all of the third-party providers that you're going to utilize from an API perspective or from a data perspective. Um, you know, if you if you have this mandate to have resilience and and, and high availability as part of your application um, or security, and you've built a framework or a requirement around that. You need to have you need to have those conversations with those third parties, you know, before you start using them, and not after. Because if they're the if they're the weakest link in the chain from that perspective, if they don't have great resiliency to provide you with the options you need, then then you're stuck. I think too many companies go and and they'll you know they have the SaaS sprawl or or they just start using them, and then you know you might spend I don't know years building an HA application that that works cross cloud. But one of your vendors, you know, is not lockstep and boom, you know, you, you achieve nothing. Um, but so understand the differences, HA backups and sort of traditional DR applied here. Um, and really sort of figure out, I would say, figure out where do you want to, where do you want your sort of vendor lock-in to be, right? If it's, mm-hmm. if it's data, if you're okay with, with vendor lock-in with one cloud, that's fine. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially again if, if you're if you're building your application with forethought into that, and maybe you know we, we see people. I'm sure you've seen it many times. People that are like, I'm I'm going to use AWS multiple regions, but I'm purposely not going to use any any platform services. I'm going to run my own SQL instances and <laughs> kind of go backwards in that way. Fine. Um, you know, if you're using our you know RPO, as far as I'm aware, it does today it does not have any cross cloud replication capabilities. But let's say it did, great. Now your vendor lock in is is on that level. Um, so I, I would say a lot of this is sort of risk, you know, risk aversion, risk mitigation. Um, I think the likelihood of of all of AWS going down and having a need for sort of cross cloud is you know hopefully very little to none. But I think a single region outage, as we've seen, is is you know fairly, it's definitely in realm of possibility and, and happens. Um, but I do think what you're saying makes sense from a backup perspective, right? Maybe we don't need you know a, an RTO of being able to fail over from AWS to Azure within four hours or 24 hours. 
But if we're copying our data, if, if we're having a copy of our data there and we, and we understand what the path to, res, to sort of bringing it back up looks like, um, I think that you're in better shape than most are today. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I've had, as a consultant, I've had multiple companies come to me over the years and say, hey, we need to implement DR, so we want to, we, we can't trust AWS, or we don't want to trust AWS, so we want to use multiple cloud providers. And my approach with them has always been, you know, I don't think AWS is, and not picking on AWS here, but I don't think that's the weak point. And then we go through and look at their stack and it always comes down to the fact that, you know, it, that hasn't been the weak point. You know, they've chosen to use a managed database provider. And so all of their data is not even in their AWS environment, or they have all of these external dependencies like Salesforce or or different things like that. And it's like, okay, if you can replicate all your infrastructure over to another provider, but this third-party dependency is still a single point of failure and much more painful if that goes down. Um, which makes me think along those lines, since you work with a lot of companies in this, how willing are third-party vendors to talk about what their own internal DR and high availability strategy is? Um, <laughs> they, all have, they all have their boilerplate off-the-cuff answer that they have to provide. Right. You know, and it's always going to be pretty vague and you're probably going to have to go back two or three more times. Um, and sometimes I'll just refer you to the SLA and obviously their SLA credit mechanisms like most are going to be just a joke. Right. Um, and so it is, it, it is a risk. I mean, I, I will say on the, on the compute side, I do think that, you know, Kubernetes has, has democratized sort of the, um, the compute layer and has made it very easy to sort of, you know, deploy, you know, your your code where you want um, when you want to, but it, you, but you're right. It is it is the database layer, uh, and sort of the rest of the shared services layers, um, and that's kind of a it's it is kind of a hard pill to swallow because you know again what if if you kind of want to manage and run and operate your own databases, you know that's fine. It'll be less expensive that way. Um, you'll save you'll save money and you'll have more control, and you will be able to to sort of make good on this sort of cross cross cloud resilience if you want to. Um, but now the operational overhead has has increased. And so, you know, part of what we've done and, and sort of what I've sort of been dabbling in, you know, with, with some consulting is um, just doing that dependency mapping, application mapping, and and figuring out what we what we want to do. And just by the way, just because you're using PaaS in you know in production doesn't mean that you can't have sort of a single database deployment in DR with some sort of you know, repl um, sort of, uh, sort of, you know, snapshot or replication mechanism in place as a, as a backup. And look, if it takes you two days to get that to get all the tweaks worked out. You know, post event, you know, most people will say that's not the end of the world, and and they will ex accept that as a solution. Because to be honest, a lot of folks are looking. Unfortunately, they're looking to check the box on a DR strategy, uh, or having one in place for compliance and. Having a DR strategy does not necessarily mean that you have you have a runbook or you have super low RTOs RPOs. It just means that you have sat down and written what you would do during an event, um, even if it hasn't been fully tested. And so, if that's what you're after, if that's what your goal is, if, um, because maybe you are not a you know a fully technology based platform as a as a as a business um, as a revenue generation, oftentimes that is enough. 
Yeah, I think the um, having the conversation about RTO, the recovery time objective, is really important to have um, because all of my entire career, you know, I've never worked for companies like Google. Well, there's, there's been one exception where I had one of my employers. We were doing um, healthcare for trauma patients, so we had to had to move quickly there. But for most businesses, having Having that RTO conversation is very helpful because while ideally you would like to say, oh yeah, we can, we can fail over in two hours. That's cool, but it comes with a set of costs and acknowledging the fact that, you know, it would be embarrassing to tell your customers we'll be up in two days. Maybe that is the right strategy based on your, your business. Yeah, you, you got to start somewhere, right? When, when, when I've worked with companies to build a disaster recovery um, strategy and actually roll it out, you know, first thing we'll ask is what, what, are, the, what are the business goals you're trying to achieve? And, and some of the questions might be, you know, do you, do you need, are you only looking to protect against a, a sort of um, a full failure at the production site where all the applications need to be filled over concurrently? Or are you looking to protect against um, situations where you might need to fail over individual applications. Um, and then there might be other questions like, do you want to fail over if there's like one server that is sort of ransomware? And, and, you know, of course, everybody says yes to everything. Yes, we want all that. <laughs> the problem is the sort of the more situations, sort of the increased complexity. And, you know, ironically enough, the full failover event, the everything needs to come over at the same time is actually much easier to, to, um, to, to, to build for and to achieve than all of the others, because typically you have this sort of interdependence between applications or sitting or maybe behind the same firewall on the same VPC, the same network. And so if you can keep them on all the same IP addresses um, and keep references intact, then it, it is much easier. And so typically we'll, we'll, we'll employ a phased approach. Well, let's, let's be able to achieve that, improve that, show that it works. And then we'll sort of peel back the rest of the layers of the onion and, and strive for more. Yeah, it reminds me of an analogy from um, drag car, drag car racing. Speed costs money. How fast can you afford to go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I really think it's interesting when you think about these things and you think about the the, the burdens. If you're looking for complete HA, um, multi-region, or even multi-cloud, the bur- the extra burden that you're putting on your you know DevOps or app dev teams, you know, and what is what does that translate into? Um, just sort of the, the business impact, you know, how, how much longer are your development cycles because of that? And what are you not being, what, what, what features are you not able to work on because of all this extra time put into the forethought of this high availability? That's why I like, I like the middle ground approach where let's have our developers focus on developing a application that runs on a single, let's say AWS region and you know, hands, you know, head down, hands to keyboard, focus on building applications, which they probably have, probably have a lot of experience doing that. You know, this whole multi-region thing is, is typically fairly new to someone and they're going to go off on a tangent. So app devs, you focus on building, you know, an application that, that is resilient within a region. Um, AWS makes it fairly straightforward to do that. And then maybe a separate team or an SRE team or a company like Optinine kind of comes in over the top and says, we are going to employ a disaster recovery as a service to that single region deployment. 
um, and, and achieve resilience using tools like RPO and using proven strategies. And that way, the app devs can just highly focus. I think that's such a win-win. Um, and honestly, I don't even know that there's a ton of developers out there that can even achieve the HA with the high degree of success. Yeah, I think one of the other benefits of that approach is discovering tribal knowledge. Because in a lot of the scenarios I've been involved with, we do things and we take certain steps or actions because of this tribal knowledge that we happen to know. And in many cases, we don't even know that we're making decisions based on tribal knowledge. But when you bring in a third party like Optinine, um, then you're you're coming at it from a fresh perspective without the tribal knowledge. And you, it it works really well to expose that. And it's like, oh, okay, now we have this piece of information that has to be documented and and formalized. Uh, absolutely. And, and like I said at the, at the beginning, you know, when I hear tribal knowledge, you know, I hear I hear complexity. And I don't right. think that I, I think there's this whole idea of managing complexity, managing complexity sprawl, you know, fighting to reduce complexity. It's not um, it is not being pushed enough, you know, from an industry perspective. In fact, I think we have the opposite problem. I think we have a lot of folks out there and and I'll even, you know, different times in my career, I've definitely been guilty of this. You know, we have we have shiny object syndrome and we want to be able to be exposed to all the latest and greatest tools. Um, you know, I think we're all curious people in this industry and we like playing with new things. I think I think part of it also is just maybe a little bit of fear and ensuring that we have the the, the latest and greatest acronyms on our resumes. Um, For sure. But Shiny object syndrome is, you know, is I think the complete opposite of I want to keep my environment simple so that it's manageable, so that I can reduce the need for tribal knowledge. Um, and this kind of goes into the like other soft skills, right? Like, you know, if I want the person at 4 a.m. to be able to, to fix what I built, you know, to what extent am I a good technical documenter? And to what extent do I take pride in that as a, as a standalone skill that I'm good at, you know, as, as a developer or an SRE? Or, or, you know, or DevOps person. Yeah, agreed. And I just speaking from personal experience, I'm not good at, at documenting. I'll write something that just seems to be as clear as it can be. And then usually me six months later looks at it and was like, Who, who's the moron that wrote it? Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've all been there, right? I mean, when I, I manage a lot of technical teams and it's always that last 10%. Let me see the documentation. How are we monitoring it? How do we know if it goes down? How are you backing it up? I mean, <laughs> we want to build cool things, right? And then we just want to pass yeah. it on. Um, but I do think that that us as sort of you know uh, DevOps engineers, we need to start taking pride in in sort of skills that are outside of hands to keyboard, technical documentation, taking pride in being able to walk away, go on vacation, and people knowing what's going on by reading my documentation without calling me. Um, you know, I think also being a good troubleshooter, and this com- this kind of come goes back into the the complexity and sort of disaster recovery conversation. But to what extent, you know, is my troubleshooting skill set high? And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the soft skills don't have great KPI or metrics that you can kind of throw on a resume that can show how well you you do with those things. But but I love I I love honing the troubleshooting skill and being brought into a problem that I know nothing about. And, you know, figuring it out, you know, quickly compared to maybe folks that wrote it or, or have been dealing with it. It's, you know, that's fun. It's a great little challenge. Yeah, that's one thing I've ad- advocated for 
for years now is my role as a DevOps engineer is to work myself out of a job, you know, to set everything up so that it runs. And when it doesn't, it's clearly documented and what steps to do. And someone new can come on board and get their app to production without having to rely on me and do so in a way that makes sure that they honor the constraints of the business. And if I can do that, then there's no reason for me to be at that company anymore. And I think that's my own personal metric for job success. Yeah, I think actually, um, you know, not not to not to pull more shiny objects into the conversation, but I think so Gen AI, I think, has a, a huge potential to help in the screen. In fact, I'm talking to some startups that are already starting to do this where you you will plug them into all of your internal documentation. Um, and they will basically just give you a chat bot where you can just ask questions. And so, for, you know, having service provider experience, this is this is really interesting because, you know, if we're, if we're managing mo- multiple customer deployments, you know, part of what Optinine does is we're, we provide, we're doing managed cloud ops for managing AWS deployments on behalf of our customers. Um, but, you know, not to say we don't want every customer to be their own science project, but there is always going to be this balance of standardization um, and and customization. And so we have very detailed documentation on on each customer's deployment and, and diagrams and all that. But it's very hard to scale that, especially for the person at 4 a.m. that gets the phone call that something is down and having to sit through and read all that documentation and catch up. It, you know, it's like it's an, it's an impossible task to do when you need to spend hours catching up before you can even begin to troubleshoot. And this, I think, is what, with, which is really cool, it's just where Gen AI can help, where if you have this you know, LLM that's constantly looking at this data, and you can have a bot where you say, hey, where's this customer stuff deployed? When was the last time something was deployed? When was there a change? And you can just quickly get those answers. To me, as, as someone who's managed 24-7 teams, I mean, that's just super exciting. And, and that really helps us scale you know, the, the, the knock and the SOC organization. Yeah, for sure, because context switching is huge, and that's where it seems to really raise its visibility of how painful and expensive context switching is. And and I think you probably are, are very familiar with it from your experience at Opti9 when you switch from not only project to project, but customer to customer. And so you are working on one customer's environment that's built this way, and then you know the pager goes off and you have to switch to a completely different environment and so how do you minimize that amount of time where you're just sitting there with a blank stare trying to figure out where to begin in this environment that could have infinite number of of combinations yeah and and i'd say like now based on you know as we're talking you know saying like the complexity it's almost impossible um to be honest it really is and and having you know the tribal knowledge and the experience working on a specific customer's environment, um, you know, helps greatly. So what we do is, is we obviously try to have as many, as many standardized tools as we can, standardized monitoring. I like looking at different monitoring strategies where, where we have, where we, we build monitoring again into the, into the CICD workflow as far as what we're going to monitor. Um, but what, what I'd like to do is, is to really have sort of macro level alerts go off at the same time as sort of uh, micro level alerts go off. So if my application is down, if we're monitoring a specific query and we want to see that it's returning, you know, greater than 25 results from the customer perspective, if that goes down, I would like to see 
you know, four or five different monitors. You know, they're monitoring specific layers of the back end or specific API endpoints also going down at the same time. So the poor, the poor technician at 4 a.m., we're kind of spoon feeding them. Hey, some, you know, there's a serious problem. Um, but at the same time, hey, we also notice these four things that are out of whack. And so instead, instead of having to start from scratch, they can kind of work backwards from the, the lowest hanging fruit. Yeah, just giving them a series of breadcrumbs to follow. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, I think that's that's a strategy. I mean, to me, that's is that a technical is that a is that a sort of technical skill or is that sort of a this quasi non-technical strategy that you need to employ you know, with this resilience or SRE hat, you know, so for sure, sort of DevOps, <laughs> you know, right there in the middle of DevOps, I think. Yeah. One of the things I like to do is in all of my alerts, I like to include like, Hey, here's the alert, obviously here's why it went off. And then here is a link to the application dashboard and the runbook for that. Just yeah. you know to leave those breadcrumbs and and help minimize that context switching time. Absolutely, absolutely. Documentation. You've mentioned that multiple times, and it's a, a pet peeve of mine because I don't like Confluence, I don't like Notion, um, I don't like GitHub Readmes. Pretty much, I don't like any of the documentation tools. But you mentioned standardizing on tools. Do you have a preferred documentation tool? Um, I don't. I, I've used I've used sort of all of the above, you know. I I, I would say the answer. I, I don't think that there's one tool that's better than the other, right? And this is this is a cliche, but right, it's more about the, the use. It's like talking about it's like talking about the best diet, right? It's the best. It's the one that you can do consistently over time. Um, yeah, I think one of the and I think so as long as you as long as it's simple and and you can build it into your workflow, you know, fairly easily. That that is the best tool. I'll tell you one one win related to that that I that I experienced years ago. Um, it happened to be with Confluence, but the same example um, I know is the same sort of capability and it was available in almost all documentation tools now. Years ago we used to use we used to use um, Visio to create like you know diagrams and then we'd upload them into the documentation tool. And that whole process of sort of you know bringing the bringing the the work or the output from one tool and the other, that process, like people don't want to do that. They'll end up mm-hmm. just sort of keeping the diagram, let's say in their own, let's say they're using, you know, Lucid charts uh, or Glyphy or something like that. They'll end up just keeping it in that account. Um, so a big win for me was, was when Confluence started adding in these plugins where you can actually um, create the diagram without having to go out of the documentation system um, and have the diagram embedded right into the document right there instead of having to build it in a separate tool with an important copy and all that. And so, um, you know, I think that was great because now I mean, it, I, I'm authoring a document. I want to show a visual representation. I'm a, you know, I'm a big visual person and I can just create the diagram right there without having to leave the page. It's saved. And now the actual, the actual IP of that diagram is embedded into the document. It can never be pulled apart Nobody can ever tell me, oh yeah, I never upload I never uploaded the latest version of the diagram into the document. So this that whole concept of of you know working in the updating of documentations and diagrams into your workflow, I think is a really good example of how of how you can do that. Obviously, with um I think with, with Jira and um and GitHub, you can do that, but I don't think that that capability exists enough for more of a of an op, uh, infrastructure operations SRE perspective. 
Right on. Um, when it comes to like making sure things are up to date, whether that's documentation or run books or your failover strategy, what's the minimum frequency you would recommend someone reviewing that? Um, well, I'd say twice a year is, is probably the minimum. Um, but then you also you need to add you need to add hooks into your change control, right? Um, anytime you maybe deploy a new service, you know that should be a hook to whoever is responsible, you know, for resilience. Maybe an outside vendor like if it's not if it's an outside vendor like Optinine, you know. So if I'm sitting in the customer seat, I'm going to add as much as many hooks as possible, and I'm going to say to my vendor like, "Hey, we just changed this, we just changed that. Make sure our <laughs> make sure our resilience still works." Um, now, on the flip side, if I'm in Optinine seat, I might say, yeah, no problem. Um, we've updated it, which which we'll do in earnest, and we have to. Um, but hey, you know, we, we did what we had to do, but we got to retest now. Um, right. So you got you you do have to find that balance. And it doesn't mean that you can't, you know, update these things on an ongoing basis and then kind of have a list of what you want to ensure functions during the next test. I will say, though, one of the important things with testing is, um, you don't want to just have the IT teams doing the application testing. You really need to have users testing. Um, maybe it's QA. Um, maybe you have internal staff that are using the system. You need people that can smell out a problem with the application, can smell out the fact that it's maybe a little bit more sluggish or that certain functionality doesn't work as good. And this is a big miss. A lot of IT teams try to internalize it because they want to just move past it. For sure. Yeah, just as an IT background, my my overall objective is to avoid as many conversations with other humans as possible. But this is one of those areas where you, you just kind of can't do that. And I'm guilty of doing it too, of, of performing a failover, looking, yeah, all the health checks pass, no alarms, that must be good. And then moving on. Yeah. I, and I, I like the idea of almost making product managers responsible for some of this. You know, if, if, um, resilience and high availability is you know is a feature a component you know of, of sort of the outward product then i do think that they can be the liaison um between the developers um third parties or whoever is whoever is owning the resilience you, you do need a quarterback there and if and if there is a product product management function um i think this is a great aspect for them to ensure continuity of long term yeah agreed like a, a seasoned product manager is just worth their weight in gold because they understand all of these different layers of complexity and interactions between the teams. And, and just by job definition, they're really good at, at orchestrating and pulling in the right resources at the time that they're needed. Yeah. And, and with third parties, right? If they get wind yeah. of using Salesforce, you know, what they're going to want to do is, you know, potentially pull in, the, you know, whatever positive capabilities are being pulled pulled through, maybe they're pulling that into a, a product feature set. They also need to better understand that, um, you know, what it means for the outward messaging on the, on the resilience or, or if they can still make good on that promise. All right. Well, we are coming up on an hour here. Is there anything else that you feel like we should be covering when it comes to resilience, DR, and managing complexity? So I'd say like the most important thing, and, and this might be a little cliche um, these days, but, you know, is just make no assumptions. Make no assumptions on any of the platforms that you're using. Um, 
in regards to what built-in resilience or redundancy exists. Um, and also keep in mind that high availability and resilience does not always equate your ability to recover from specific types of events. You know, if, if you're hit with a cyber attack um, and your data is, is corrupted in production systems, you know, having a replica or having high availability, even with multiple regions, does not mean you can recover from that. There are other sort of strategies that you need to employ. Um, obviously, you know, how far back is your, is your, you know, is your snapshot history, your journal? And, you know, you'll need to have separate runbooks for that type of situation than sort of the high availability types of situations. So just understand there's sort of, you know, those are completely separate. Um, and again, make no assumptions. Yeah, it's almost like this would make a really good board game. <laughs> that would make a good board game. Yeah. So, for, yeah. We should do like a jump to conclusion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well done on the office phase reference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nice to sneak that in. <laughs> well played. Cool. So if, if folks, if our listeners want to talk more about this or reach out to you directly with additional questions, what's the best way for them to do it? Uh, find me on LinkedIn. That's probably okay. the platform that I'm most active on. Um, you know, or, or, or you know, write to me on there or sagia.panopta9tech.com uh, or you'll find me. I'm, I'm reach- My name is kind of unique, so I, I have no doubts that, that anyone who's listening to the show will, will, not, will be able to, not be able to find me. So your name is unique. Is that short for something? Sagi is a is a Hebrew name. Um, okay. So like other Hebrew names, um, they can kind of get butchered, you know, in these parts. But there are much worse Hebrew names that I, I you know, I, 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 so I, I don't have it that bad. But it is, I mean, um, it, it is nice because when I get cold calls, I immediately know that this person never spoke to me before and doesn't know who I am. <laughs> the built-in screening feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Awesome. Well, Sagi, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a, a cool conversation. And I think it's one that we we need to spend more time talking about because it, it often gets overlooked or assumed. Like you said, make no assumptions. Uh, absolutely. Well, cool. Well, awesome. I thank you. Thank you. I mean, this has been fun. Um, you're a, a great presenter and it's nice to talk to someone who's kind of also lived it and been through it as well. Right, us, us old guys have to group together and, and tell war stories every once in a while. <laughs> right. All right. Thanks again, Sagi. Thank you for listening, and we will see you all next week. <laughs>